which of the following are true about the story of Jesus? This is the, the um, Jesus comes down from the transfiguration. There's the, um, the disciples. Remember, they're dealing with somebody who's demon-possessed. Okay? I don't want to give you more details because I'm asking you the questions here. The disciples could not exercise the demon. The child was the man's only son. Jesus rebuked the healers for their lack of faith, not the man who was seeking the healing. The disciples did not seek to learn from their failure in casting out the demon. The demon went, came out immediately without any resistance when Jesus approached the boy. This was the first time the disciples faced a demon possession without Jesus being with them. Let's do one at a time. Could or could not the, demons, uh, the disciples cast out the demon? They could not, so that's true in that case. The man who came to them, he, one of his many or his only son? It is going to be his only son, which, if that's the case, do you think that that intensifies you know, the situation? Okay. Jesus rebuked the healers for their lack of faith, not the man who was seeking the healing. What's that? Yes. <laughs> You guys are so good. <laughs> yeah. Okay, he did. Uh, the disciples did not seek to learn from their failure. How, why do you say false? They asked afterwards. Remember they said, why is it we could not cast out? And he said, this comes out only by prayer and fasting. Yeah, that's, that's the account. Okay. The, No. Now, what's the question? <laughs> We're doing Jeopardy here. The demon came out immediately. That is no. Okay, there was uh, more attacks. The first time the disciples faced a demon possession without Jesus. Why do you say no? Because I put the answer up already? Is that why? Because he had sent them out previously. He did. And that's what makes the story even more, uh, more impacting, is he had just a couple chapters before, just weeks before, actually, he had sent them out and they had gone out and they had cast out demons, which, by the way, plays into the role that the disciples are trying to, but they fail and they say, it worked in the past, why isn't it working now? So that plays into the story. So um, we've done that story. Let's pick, let's pick up in John 14. Actually, we're going to talk a little bit about that story this morning in the morning worship. So let's go weeks beyond that, months beyond that. Let's go all the way to his last week. This is the night that Jesus is going to be arrested. He's at supper with the disciples. It is that Thursday evening. Um, he, has, he has wrapped up this meal, a uh, portion of it where he has already washed their feet. Um, there's the whole setting is they came in with strife and he's kind of rebuking them by washing their feet and uh, with that in mind Judas has already been in meeting with the um, Jewish leaders and planning the, uh, the betrayal so Jesus had gotten up washed the feet and then he says to him one of you is going to betray me I'll give him the sop and identifies Judas that way and then Judas leaves and Jesus starts a series of teaching principles and paragraphs he t- says to them a new commandment we talked about it why is it new it's because of the standard, that he says a new commandment, you love one another as I have loved you. That is the standard. He announces he's going to leave. They're upset. He says, you, can, you can't come with me. Uh, matter of fact, he announces it in this text. He says it three different times. I am leaving. You can't come with me. I'm leaving. And I keep on asking myself, why is there so much repetition in the Sermon on the, on the, sermon of, of the Upper Room in chapter 14, 15, 16? There is so much repetition that he keeps on going back. Why do you think that is? 
Why is it that he says to them, I'm leaving, and then later on he says, I am leaving, you can't come with me, and then later on he says, I'm leaving, you can't go with me. Can I, can I pose a possibility? If you hear some news that has just absolutely put you in shock, do you need it repeated at times? Or if you were dealing with somebody who's kind of in semi-shock, do you repeat the, the, the idea over and over? Because they're not getting it. And so there's a lot of repetition. It's interesting to look at the, where he is repeating. We'll get into that. Then in chapter 14, this is that setting where what he does is he says, let not your heart be troubled. And keep in mind that when he says, let not your heart be troubled, we memorize it in English. Literally it says, stop being troubled. Which implies that everything that they are hearing, it is ripping them in two. That they are having all kinds of difficulties. So he's um, told them he's leaving. They're getting a little bit of it. And then he says, okay, let me give you some positive. And he starts giving him several different promises and positive. The first one he starts talking about is heaven. We made the observation, what a fabulous help that we can give to others by talking about the future hope. He then talks about power. So he's talking about paradise. Now he talks about power. He says you're going to be able to have greater, do greater works. In other words, even though I'm leaving, you can still minister and you can still have impact. Then he talks about answered prayers. That's where we're at, where he gives them even more encouragement. Verses 13, 14, 15. Whatsoever you shall ask in my name, I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. If you love, let's stop there. And so he's giving them this promise about prayers and being answering the prayers. And again, it kind of looks, first note, it kind of looks like, hey, just anything you want, I'll do. But he's got some clarifications already within the text. And so this isn't, okay, somebody saying, I really want to have success in cheating on a test. No, 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 no. That would not be fitting under this passage. So uh, keep in mind that he's talking to peoples that he has met their needs for the last two and a half years. He's even helped them pay their taxes by going and do some fishing. And so he's been meeting their needs. They've been with him. And sometimes it's miraculous. Sometimes the meeting of their needs is he is being supported by some of the generosity of others in the community, including some wealthy ladies. And so that wasn't uncommon. And so what's happening is these guys, if he leaves, um, I don't mean it to, I don't mean it to sound silly, but if he leaves, so does their meal ticket because he's the contact point. And so part of his leaving and going is going to be not only the spiritual, emotional, but there's going to be some concerns later on about economics and so their provisions. And so when he is saying, I'm going to take care of your needs, you can ask and I'll take care of it, that is very important in the circumstance. He has been providing, he has been giving them direction. He says, but, I, but I'm still with you. Okay, um, I'm still going to be you know, planning for your future. You still have power, and you can still ask me, and I'll take care of your needs. And so that's very important in that context. And so he not only says it once, but look at, how, look at the passage. He says it in verse 13, and then he repeats it in verse 14 right away. Okay, right back to back. If you ask, if you ask, I'll do these things. By the way, why do you repeat things back to back to your kids? Okay, so they get it, okay? And part of the reason some of you are being more, more kind, you say they're brain dead. I don't know if it caught on right away. Or you don't know if they're, they're listening. Okay, and so he's saying it because of the importance, because he wants it. So uh, we look at it and say, wait a minute. Now, this is a very, very certain, powerful promise. However, we need to think and talk about some of this, okay? It's open to any believer, 
Because he uses the word whoever or whosoever, this isn't just those guys. He's broadened the passage to include all of his disciples. I want to remind you, I'm jumping ahead, but in chapter 17 when he prays at the end of this discussion, he prays not only for his disciples who are with him, but he also prays for his disciples in the future. So some of these promises that he's laying out, he has in his mind not just them but also us. Okay, and so when he makes this, or this whosoever, that makes impact for you and me. It's open to a lot of items whatsoever. If you ask anything, that opens up the door to so many things. Okay, but what he's asking is the idea is you've got to ask time and time again. If you ask over and over, he's encouraging persistence in prayer. Um, as long as you ask in my name, what does that mean? What does it mean? We started, you know, talking about that last week. What does it mean to pray in Jesus' name? It means, okay, um, not, not to mock, but just, just to illustrate. Some groups and some, uh, some uh, denominations, if you're going to pray, you've got to do one of these. Okay, it's part of the ritualism of prayer. In Bible groups, part of the ritualism in our prayer, if we're not careful, is we attach at the end of every prayer a phrase in Jesus' name, and we don't think what that phrase means, okay? And as long as I attach the ritual to it, it's got, you know, it's like saying the magic words, and I got to say them right. Is that what in Jesus' name is supposed to be? Yes, no? No, you would say no. What's it mean to pray? If you're talking to your kids, and you're trying, and they ask you, why do we always pray in Jesus' name? What does that mean? I mean, we, we, need, we need to know this if we're doing it, guys. So what does it mean? What did you say, Rich? According to his will, as long as it's in his plan. Okay, okay. Would that be legitimate, you think? That you're, you're praying in my name. In other words, you're praying, you know, things that I approve of? Okay, Sandy? What's that? Josiah asked you? Okay. Okay, that's good. So in Jesus' name, you're attaching the concept of glorifying. Did you see it in the text even? Did you see that, that thought? Okay, that goes with it. If I'm not mistaken, right, it's there. Um, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it so that what? The Father be... Okay, so glorifying the Father in Christ is involved in how we pray. Okay, is there anything else that you would attach in Jesus' name? What's that? Okay, I think that's a valid part, absolutely valid too, that when we come to pray, we are recognizing we're here on this prayer ground only because of Jesus' name. Okay, he's the one that gets us in the door. Okay, do you ever use somebody's name when you're wanting to be introduced for an interview? Does that ever happen? Hey, by the way, so-and-so sent me here. Okay, we use people's names, you know, recommendations, things like that. And we use that legitimately. That's, I think, part of it too. So all these things, when we talk about what it means that we're approaching through Christ, we pray the way Christ would pray, we um, pray for what he would pray, as long as, again, we're asking to glorify God, which is a challenge. Okay, I cannot pray and say, God help me to get away with this lie. 
you know, blind those people so they don't see the truth about what I'm trying to pull over on them. Well, that obviously I can't pray that way because that doesn't glorify the name of God. Does that make sense? Okay. Let me not get caught that I'm playing hooky and lying about where I'm supposed to be at this time. We can't do that. Okay, so he, that would not glorify the Lord. So he's put limitations. When we say this is a carte blanche prayer, there's truth to that. We are able to pray a whole lot more and get a whole lot more than what we think, but at the same time, this isn't like anything. Just anything you want to do, you can ask for, even if it's sinful. That's not true. That doesn't fit into the text. Now, my question that I think is, inter- is interesting to ponder is what he says right attached to it. If you love me, keep my commandments. Does that go, is that a separate thought? Does that go with praying? Does it go with what's coming next? Is it all three? Okay, there is a transition, right? You're praying in Jesus' name, obey my commands. Is there any kind of tie? Would you think there could be a tie to, I will do what you want if you, if you love me, keep my commands? Can you see any, any, any possibility that those two are tied together? Yes, no? How so? Okay, it's another condition. It's a condition that if we're going to ask God, we're going to expect God to answer our prayers, what do we have to be doing in the meantime? We've got to live in a way that's pleasing to Him and doing His commands. This, the same thing is true as you as a parent. Do you shower the blessings upon your kids who are living in continuous obedience? We shouldn't. There's going to be limitations, right? I mean, we bless them, we love them. But we start pulling back some of the things, some of the freedom, some of the liberty. It's not the same if they're, not, if they're in, in rebellion to you. So you have some limitations. So here we go. Lessons to note. We have so much more than the Old Testament saints. Remember, they are here. They are going into a new phase, and he's going to start telling them, hey, here's some of the blessings. I'm leaving you, but I'm not deserting you so that you're totally on your own. And some of these promises are a whole lot better than what the generations before have heard. Jesus does not want his disciples to struggle with, struggle with discouragement in trials. Did you notice what I phrased here? He did not say we will not have trials and we should avoid you know, all trials. He wants us to have joy and stability in the midst of trials, we will have the trials. Our our God, Jesus, will minister to our needs and help on our behalf. Give us great, great help, okay? Even in the prayer. Did you notice how he said it? Bless you, in the prayer. And whatsoever you shall ask in my name, that will... Did you catch the pronoun? I will do it. So he's promising help even though he's going to be going away. He wants us to experience spiritual works and success. That's in the previous verses where you'll do even greater works. He is more than willing to answer our prayers, but we need to pray in his will, and we need to pray. It's one thing to talk about prayer. It's a whole other thing to do it. And so the question is, okay, why doesn't God answer my prayers? I think one of the first questions we should ask is, do we legitimately pray? where we're spending time and focus and praying fervently, not just in a crisis moment in the middle of all the other things we're busy doing and just while I'm doing other things, then I say, oh, God, by the way, answer my prayer. And just keep on going. 
Okay, um, do we focus in that prayer? Jesus' command. Now, he's promised them lots of stuff. I think it's interesting that after he's talked about paradise, he's talked about the power, he's talked about the uh, answer to prayer, he's given them all these thoughts, the, which, which are phenomenal. They're great. By the way, he's going to give some more in the rest of the chapter. Um, then he says, right here, he says, by the way, I want something from you. I want you to do something. And I think that's part of verse 15. If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray, then the Father, and he shall give you another comforter. And so he talks about his, uh, his commandments there in verse 15 and saying, you need, you need to be obedient. He mentions it. Then he uh, is going to talk about the Holy Spirit, and then he's going to mention his commands again. Uh, jump down a little bit into the text, and I'll show you what I mean. Where he says down in verse 21, He that has my commandments and keeps them, he it is that loves me. He that loves me shall be loved of my Father, and I love him and will manifest myself to him. And so he's talking in this text, starting with verse 15, and then jumps again in verse 21 to the idea that we need to obey his commandments. Now, this is not the first time he's talked about it. In the Gospels, he's talked about it a lot. In this chapter, in this setting, he will talk about it a lot. He'll say it three different times about the importance of keeping his commandments. And uh, they're, they're in, that, in that comments of all the promises, he says, okay, here's your op- opportunity. Here's what strikes me, okay? Um, let, let me see if I, can, if I can get this across in a decent way. There are people who are preaching right now. There are people who are preaching that this time in the States, on the East Coast, that in order to get to heaven, you've got to obey all the commandments as possible. Okay? Would you agree that that's true? That, they, that people need to keep all of God's commandments to get to heaven? Do we work our way into heaven? That's what I'm getting at. No. Okay. There are some who would say this, who would say... Um, who would say uh, to gain favor with God, even though I'm saved by faith, I've got to keep all these works or God won't keep on loving me. And we wouldn't agree with that. Now, flip side, would we say this? We should and must have works in our lives. Yes, because if we're saved by faith, faith without works is... okay. So we know that there are some who have got the pendulum over here and they almost become a legalistic idea that I'm spiritual because I do good works. Right? There's a group, the element that says that. We would say you're not spiritual because of your works. You're spiritual because of your relationship with Christ, your fellowship with Him. Okay? Then there's a group that's over here that's in our circles that say out of reaction to that, don't worry about works at all. It's all about relationship. Churches shouldn't talk about doing works because we can have a, work, a walk with Christ. It's all about relation, relation, fellowship, fellowship, and works shouldn't be mentioned at all. Don't mention going to church because somebody can be close to the Lord without going to church. Don't mention witnessing. If they're really close to the Lord, that'll just automatically come oozing out. We shouldn't talk about the works of, of um, well, I don't know what you want to put down, um, devotions. Let's not make people feel guilty about having a prayer time and reading their Bible because if they are just focused on really being close to Jesus, that's just going to come oozing out. 
do I believe that if we're close to Jesus, there's going to be an oozing? I think there's some truth to that. However, are both of these seeming to you to be extreme situations? Okay, it's all about works as a believer. And I'm talking not about getting saved, but as a believer, we got to work, 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 work. And I got to be busy serving the Lord. And if I'm not serving the Lord, and we get so busy in the work of the Lord, we forget the Lord of the work. Or over here, don't talk at all about doing anything. It's all about fellowship. Let's not stress anything. Both of those seem to be an extreme thought to me. Jesus seems to be right in the middle. Okay? That, that right here where Jesus is, says, if you love me, you've got to do something. Doesn't he expect us to do something if we love him? You've got to show it somehow. Is it all about just praying, fasting, meditating, and being in my little cubicle of life and just talking to Jesus and not interacting with others. It can't be that. There's got to be some type of active works if we love him. Does that make sense? What's that? We've got to keep his commands. Okay, we've got to do something, don't we? Okay, now that doing something should flow out of a fellowship with him. It empowers us to do that something. And I'm not saying, okay, as long as we do good works, we're right with God. Because we all know that's not true. We can do, let's pick this. Can we come to church, do the work of, of the motions of worship, and not be right with God? Can we do that? I can. Okay, And I have. There's been moments where it's like I go through the motions in my Christian life and I'm doing this stuff, but at that moment I know I'm not right with God because, for instance, I might not be right with Deb. Okay, And I guess I'm the only one in the room that that's ever happened to, okay, by your stunned looks. Um, okay. But we've all been there. We've done a work without, without that close fellowship. So we know, we know the extremes are wrong. But we have to be in the middle. We have to come to where, where was Jesus? We need to have prayer. And isn't it interesting? He mentions you need to have, let's do this, you need to have prayer, but you don't pray to the neglect of doing some type of activity of works. Does that make sense? Okay. And, and at the same time, the works don't negate, you know, okay, now that I'm just going to church, I don't need to pray. No, there's got to be a balance in all this. And so Jesus is giving the balance. And his balance is, to me, this is a really challenging phrase, where he says, it's not just about coming and singing pious platitudes, and then the rest of the week we go and do our own thing. That's what he's getting at. And the application is, I can't be right with him. I can't be loving him by coming here and I just worship and pray and sing about Jesus and then go out and ignore his commands. He says, that's not love. You know, in, in modern America, is that what many are substituting as love for Christ? Yeah. But that's what he, this passage is saying. There's a balance here. You have got to, in the rest of the week, do, be doing his commands, not just be singing about him and doing it. And, oh, man, there's a lot of commands. And we start saying, what did he talk about in the Gospels? There is so much that we, we will constantly be busy trying to focus and forgive and pray and be thankful and rejoice and visit the widows and follow in baptism and be honest and serve by giving out and teaching others the word of God, discipling others by 
by you know, doing, you know, being honest at work, by working hard, all those things he's talked about. He's given different comments about them in the Gospels and or the Epistles. And so there's so many different commands. So with that, after he's talked about fellowshipping with me, having activity in your life that is, that is flowing out of that fellowship, then he talks about the empowerment. How is that possible to do it? That's where he gets now into the comments of the Holy Spirit. It seems to me that just runs together, that this is so important. I can pray, but I also have to be having another side of the coin of my Christian life, and that is doing things that I'm expected to do. And in order to pray, in order to do those things, I need the Holy Spirit. And so he talks about the Holy Spirit in this passage where verse 16, I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. So he uses a word that's really important. If you've not marked your Bible, you want to do this. There are two different words in the original language for, in our English, that come across as another or other. One of them means, something of the same kind, okay? Um, that is, um, you know, a, 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 in cars, okay? There's two Buicks, okay? One is, you know, parked in my driveway. They're both green, and they're both years old, and they both have those 100,000 miles plus. They're of the same kind, that I do this frequently. I walk up to the one car and stick the wrong keys in because they're so much of the same kind. Then there is something of another, okay, I have that car and another car. And then there might be another vehicle that is totally different. Totally different brand, totally different size, totally different make and model. That's the words that he's using here. The halos, which is of the same kind, would be the two green cars that are within a couple of years apart, both with a high mileage. The other would be a totally different type of vehicle that would never mix up the keys, he uses in this text halas. They're really, really close, identical. And so it's very clear that what he's talking about here when he says, I want to send you another comforter, a parakletos, is the word somebody come along beside you. In fact, he calls himself in 1 John chapter 2, verse, 20, uh, verse 1, where it says, we have an advocate with the Father. He uses parakletos. So he's saying that same, I have that job of coming beside you, so I'm going to send you somebody just like me who will do that same job with you. And he calls him the spirit of truth. And so what he's telling the disciples here is they're going to get a new helper, a new divine assistance. But this new helper is going to be just like him in many, many ways. It's going to be very similar, excuse me, it's going to be very similar. He's going to be one of the trinity. And so he's making it very clear, here's what you got. I, you know, I'm leaving, but I'm not deserting. I am going to send somebody just like me who's going to take and help you out with this. So he's claiming here uh, the idea of deity is coming up here as well as the important thought about the Holy Spirit. Now as we go through, watch what he says about the Holy Spirit. He shall give, I'll pray the Father and he will give you a gift. This is not something they deserve or we deserve. He's going to be in them. Okay, this is the Spirit. Now just to remind you, okay, in the Old Testament, could people have the Spirit of God in them? Yes or no? Do you remember anybody in the Old Testament who had the Spirit of God in them? Samson did. What was the problem with Samson though? The Spirit of God was in him, but then the, he did not realize that the Spirit of God had, had left him. Okay, so if we were living in the time period where the disciples are hearing this, they would understand that this is a great thing. 
Now, not all the people of the Old Testament, there's no indication in Scripture that all of them had the Spirit of God in them. The Spirit of God would come in them for a special job or task. We see that where we're all of a sudden there frequently. The Spirit of God came upon them. The Spirit of God came upon them. The Spirit of God came upon them, upon believers. And so what he's talking about is he's saying to these the 11 guys, I'm going to give you something that Moses had, David had, Saul had at times, Samson had at times. You're going to get the, uh, those who did the work on the tabernacle. The judges had them. You're going to have the special ministry of the Spirit coming upon you. Which, by the way, for them, if they knew their Old Testament, this is a phenomenal gift. This is great, because not everybody had him. But then he adds to it, as he goes on, he says that he may abide what? In verse 16. What's the, the word abide, and then what he says right after that is phenomenal. Forever. Okay, they didn't, do you remember what David prays in the Old Testament, Psalm 51, after he sins with Bathsheba? He says, take not thy my spirit from me. Why is that? Because that could happen. What is Jesus saying to these guys? I'm going to give you special endued power, and not only are you going to have this special ability and power, but it's going to be really, really great because it's going to be forever. He's going to abide in you, stay within you forever and ever. That's a phenomenal promise for them. And then he goes on, he says, to makes comment, he says to them that you already know him. In verse 17 he says, but you know him for he dwells with you. Okay, how is that? Well, you go back to John 7 and he says, I breathed, he breathed upon them and the Spirit came upon them. There was already in their ministry, there was times where they were endued with power on different occasions. And now he's going to say, okay, I'm going to give you the Spirit and uh, this Spirit is going to help you out. This is the Holy Spirit. So they're putting this together. This is going to be better than anybody in the Old Testament. And he's giving them all these promises. He says in verse 18, I will not leave you comfortless, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And um, he's talking about all these positive things. But I wanted to catch something in the uh, middle here, in verse 17. When he's giving a positive, why does he say, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it sees him not, neither knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and shall be in you. Why does he give them a negative about the world? And he's trying to draw a line between them and the world. Why do you think he inserts that right here? Can I make a suggestion or two? Could they... Could they be getting all this good news? Could they all of a sudden be saying, this is going to be so great, everything is going to go perfect. We have prayer, we have the presence of Christ, we've got heaven. We've got it made. And there's not going to be any problems. Do you think Christ is, is being kind to them by saying, hey, by the way, the world isn't going to have the same thing and they may give you opposition? Do you think that's beneficial for them to hear that he's giving them a reality check? I think so. I think it's absolutely just a positive thing to say to them at this point so as, one, they don't get puffed up. Two, when the problems come, they don't... Okay, let's, re let's think this through. You think nothing is going to go wrong. You you're just got saved. You've been told by a friend that once you get saved, all your problems will go away. There will be no problem. You will overcome sin that you've never... And they're telling you this in kindness. But all of a sudden, within that day or two after being saved, you've got more problems. 
you have more sin issues. What could be the emotion you feel? What's that? You're in shock? Disappointed? Surprised? Could you say, maybe I'm not saved. I got to get saved over. And then it'll be good. And it's good for about five more minutes. Then you have another, well, okay, five hours. Then you got another problem. (sighs) Maybe I'm not saved. Maybe I really didn't work. Could somebody get frustrated real quickly with Christianity if they don't have a reality check? Oh, yeah. So he's telling them this. He's promising them. But he wants to make sure that they don't give up when it gets tough. By the way, chapter 16 gets really pointed about the opposition. He'll build upon it as we go through. But he's going on, and here's some comments, okay? The Holy Spirit is God. That's clear. This is good. Because this means that spirit that you have within you, you really, really do have God Almighty within you. He personally set us, sent to, uh, was sent to provide comfort and help in times of trouble. That's the setting. The Holy Spirit's there to minister. He knows your difficulties. He's there to help you through the difficulties. He's personally sent to assist us in our Christian living so we can do the commands, so that we can obey, which again, I point out that Jesus is going to say within the next couple verses, you know, he started off saying, obey my commands. Oh, by the way, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. Make sure you obey my commands. Sandwich within that that idea of obeying his commands, the Holy Spirit. We are so fortunate to live in an era when the God, the Spirit lives within us. And again, you all know this. You, you, you know this. You, sometimes we say, oh, you know, uh, Father Abraham had it so nice. He could talk and God could come. There's 21 years in, recorded in the Bible. He never heard from God. You and I hear a whole lot more from God. And we've got the Spirit of God living within us. We've got it better than the Old Testament saints in many, many ways. Because the Spirit dwells within us permanently. We New Testament believers actually have a double comforter. Okay, And I remind you what I just said a few moments ago. He says he's the comforter here, and then he calls himself the same word, parakletos. And Jesus says, I'm advocating for you in heaven. So we've got two comforters been uh, working on our behalf, the Spirit and the Son, in order to help us in our Christian life. Far better than the Old Testament. Every believer has this ministry, and we'll make another comment there. The world does not have or experience the Holy Spirit. Therefore, we are different from the world innately just by the fact that we're born again. If we're born again, truly, just innately, we are different from the world. this, This, by the way, explains why some of us can meet have never met before, and all of a sudden we meet this person and we feel that sudden, I think they're a believer. Because there's a commonality that we have with that person and the Spirit of God helps identify. You know, that pinger inside that just says, hey, I think they're saved. I think that person, how many of you have ever had that? You met somebody, you start talking, and all of a sudden you say, I think they're saved. And you get in conversation, find out they're born again. And so that happens. Now, he goes on and he's going to save. Now, I think he starts repeating these things for a reason. Okay? He's saying to them, look at the next verse. He says, I'm leaving. He's already told them that. He said that I'm leaving and I'm never, I'm not going to do any more public ministries. The world will see me no more, but you see me because I live. At that day, you shall know that I am in my Father and you in me. He says that after I'm gone, I won't do public ministries. You're going to see me. What's he referring to? When he says, now this is important for the disciples. When he says, I'm not, I'm, he mentions he's leaving, but I'm not leaving you comfortless. A little while, though you, the world's not going to see me. But you will, because I live, you shall live also. What's he talking about? 
He's already said he's going to die. So what does he mean? I'm leaving. Nobody's going to see me, but you guys will see me. What could he be talking about is going to happen? There's going to be a resurrection. Could be the resurrection. It could also be, oh, well, did that all come up while I was yammering? Okay, so it's resurrection. We know about that. His disciples will live because he lives, so he's giving them these promises. But he adds to this verse in this passage, which is important, verse 20. At that day you shall know that I am in my Father, you in me, and I in you. The point is, they aren't going to get all this. He's acknowledging you're not going to, this isn't going to mesh. This isn't going to come together until what event happens? The resurrection. When the resurrection happens, all of a sudden all this stuff will make sense. And you're going to understand it. And by the way, isn't that true? Isn't that what happened? Is remember when they first run to the tomb and they look in the tomb, Peter and John wonder. And then it says, and they begin to remember the things that he has said, yeah. And then they start putting it together. And then when Jesus shows up, and he shows up to the ten, okay, who's missing when he shows up to the ten? Thomas. And then all of a sudden, when he walks in the room later on, second time appearing to those guys as a group, he walks in and he says, hey, Thomas, feel, touch. And Thomas falls down and he says, my Lord, my God. Okay, the resurrection is going to be what changes their minds, he's saying. The resurrection will put it together. You'll really believe. And this is going to be the moment of really connecting the dots. The resurrection is a far more important event in the, in the scriptures than sometimes we give, a, give credit to. And so he's talking. He says, you will know after the resurrection that I and the Father are one. You, it, my deity, it'll come, it'll click. You'll understand it totally. Then, verse 21, he makes the comment again that we already read. He that has my commandments and keeps them, he it is that loves me. He that loves me shall be loved of my Father. I will love him and will manifest myself to him. So he's talking about this idea, okay, if you love me, keep my commandments. Come on. Don't just sit in the upper room and sing pious platitudes. You got to do some activity. You got to be putting out. You got to be doing some effort. Again, if we do it in and of ourselves without without fellowship, that's wrong. Or if we say, okay, I'm going to just meditate on a mountaintop, that's wrong. We've got to have interaction here, service to Christ. But he says, you shall be loved to my Father. That bothers me. Because I read in John chapter 3, verse 16, for God so loved the... Okay, then what's he mean by this? What's he mean in this text? Now, I'll tell you how it's preached by some in our community that I got our hands on one denomination statement. They say that what this passage is proving is that God only loves a certain select elected few in the world. The rest, he rejoices to see them condemned. He does not love the world. He only loves those that he chose to get saved. Hmm. How does that, how does that work with other scriptures? Because God so loved the world. Okay, so why does he say, but God will love those who keep my commandments? I'll share with you another doctrinal statement. It goes this way. This proves why we need to uh, do works. If we don't do any works, God hates us. We are not loved by God. Works secure our place in heaven. That's erroneous too, isn't it? Because we are saved by... Okay, okay. So how does this one text fit with the other scriptures where it says, he that loves me keeps on keeping my commandments and the Father will love him. 
I think, in my mind, I think this is, this is how it works, okay? Um, neither one of those ideas that I've just mentioned, they fit scriptures. But it seems to me that he is reiterating to them, God is not indifferent to you guys. God is not, not ignoring if you really are close with me. And your closeness is by you are serving, you are praying, and you are, you are involved with keeping this balance in your Christian life. God is not indifferent to you. God knows us as that. God will draw closer to you for that. It doesn't mean that, okay, he hates the others. It just means there's going to be an even greater intimacy with God the Father because we are walking down that balanced path where we are drawing closer to him. And so with that in mind, he's talking and saying to them, don't bail out. It's going to, you know, keep this in mind, that you need to obey me. You have responsibilities. God will notice the responsibilities. He's going to love you for it, and he's going to care for you. And here's the, bot, here's the thought. Don't you, don't you appreciate and feel closer to those people who pay attention to your kids? Yes, no? Okay. If somebody, if somebody really you know, if in the foyer they come up and you're standing their parent and they are focusing on your kids, you like that guy or that gal. Just because you're drawn to them a little bit better because they like your offspring. Okay, and so Jesus is saying God loves us. If we obey, yes, there's going to be an even stronger bonding with, <coughs> with that in mind. If you love me and you obey me and, you, and I'm precious to you, well, my Father is going to acknowledge that and shower. And so then he goes on and he talks about manifesting himself. That's not going to happen anymore. And Judas, not the Iscariot, says, wait a minute, wait a minute, and he's, they're, they're confused. He's going to throw in here. He says, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us, but the world's not going to see you? And Jesus goes on. He says, if a man love me, he will keep my words. There it is again, okay? And my Father will love him, and he will come unto him and make our abode with him. He that loves me not keeps not my sayings. And so he's going on repeating these thoughts again about that loving and that being close, repeats the promise of the Holy Spirit. And again, he's making repetition, obviously for two reasons. Okay, in my mind. Uh, one is, this is such important stuff, I'm going to say it again, say it again, say it again, so you get it. And I think this is, this is probably really, really true. Is, you ever go to a doctor and the doctor gives you news and you're kind of befuddled and don't hear everything the doctor says? So we often tell people who are going back for a follow-up, um, you know, they've done the biopsy. One of the best things the person can do when they go back to the doctor after, and get the consultation after the biopsy is have somebody with them who has with them the ability to write down. Why? Because if you go back after your consultation, the one word that's going to throw you, you're not going to hear everything is cancer. And all of a sudden your mind just stops there. And you are thinking about all of everything. And the doctor says to you, do you have any questions? Yeah. And the person next to you can help put it in order or keep track or hear everything that he said. And so it's really important. So I think what he's doing is he's dealing with people like us who he has said the word. He has said crucifixion, death, dying. You're on your own. You're going to have power. You're going to have prayer. You're going to have the Holy Spirit. What? You're going to have power. You're going to have prayer. You're going to have the Holy Spirit. Oh, and the shock look. Then he adds something about the Holy Spirit. At that moment, what does he say the Holy Spirit will do? One of the greatest ministries for these guys, verse 26. 
The Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things. And better than that, he's going to help you to remember the things that I've just said. They need this stuff. We need this stuff. He, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, is going to be critical to these guys that he's going to bring back to them the thoughts that he has been saying. And so he ends up basically saying he's going to give you, give you assistance. Okay, okay, now calm down. Calm down. Let me think. Let me take a breath. You're leaving? Yeah, I'm leaving. When are you leaving? Right away. Tonight. What are we going to do? Okay, let me, let me tell you what you can do. I'm going to give you peace. I'm going to give you a peace that basically, what does Philippians say? Peace that passes all understanding. And Jesus says it different. He says it this way in this text. He says, peace I leave with you. And then he identifies the peace. My peace I give unto you, not as the world gives, but give I unto you. And he now gives them this other promise. Now before that, let's just make some highlight thoughts. It is important. Okay? It is important that we do the works that God has commanded us. It is critical. It is repeated three times in the upper room, obey my commandments. If you love me, if you love me, if you love me, keep my commandments. Critical. The good works alone do not merit God's favor. Okay? We, it's not work salvation or legalism. But the good works, when combined with proper belief, they are essential Okay, we cannot minimize the idea of obedience. It just cannot be minimized by you and me. There's a balance here. Okay? They don't get us to heaven, but these good works are essential to show that we really do do them out of the love for Christ. Per God, love for God is more than words and worship moments. It is doing what God says. Oh, by the way, words and worship are part of that doing, but we cannot substitute the idea of, okay, I come on Sunday, I give him worship, and then I don't obey his commands during the rest of the week. Can't do that. Okay, and say we love the Lord. Therefore, doing outward deeds that God commands is not ritualism or borderline legalism. I'm reacting to this because I hear this frequently from folk that just say, you mentioned, you put up on the screen, you say things about how we should be obedient in witnessing and praying and in different commands that God has given. You know, you're legalistic. That's how do you how do you not get this out of scriptures that there are commands we need to obey when we get saved we're not giving okay do whatever you want that's condemned in scripture we are not free to live and do everything we want to do we are freed from sin so we do what Christ wants us to do and so there's this balance in Scripture that is so important. Doing such deeds is essential to real fellowship with God. He says, if you love me, you do this. And if you love me, God will love you and come and abide with you. So there's a balance here that says, okay, my works don't, don't get me saved, but I've got to have some activity here. I've got to have a spirit of, I will obey the Word of God and do what He says. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, what are we, are we doing with God commands? If not, he says, he that loves me not keeps not my sayings. It's a reflection on what you really believe and feel about Jesus Christ. Do you love him more than you love your own will? What a challenge. What a challenge. So Jesus goes on, and then he talks about peace. 
Okay, I'm not going to be able to develop this as much as it, it really deserves to be developed. So we're going to park right here, but we're going to talk about the disciples and the peace that he promises in the midst of this trialsome situation where they are facing a life and death situation, Christ and then their own, and he's going to say, I'm going to give you peace. We'll pick up there next time, okay? Thanks.